from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood along the shore. And he spoke to them at length in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and it withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. But some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit, a hundred or sixty or thirtyfold, Whoever has ears ought to hear. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He said to them in reply, Because knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but to them it has not been granted. To anyone who has, more will be given, he will grow rich. From anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because they look but do not see and hear, but do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You shall indeed hear, but not understand. You shall indeed look, but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their ears, They've closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be converted, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Amen, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. The seed sown on the path is the one who hears the word of the kingdom without understanding it. And the evil one comes and steals away what was sown in his heart. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and receives it at once with joy. But he has no roots and lasts only for a time. When some tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. The seed sown among thorns is the one who hears the word, but then worldly anxiety and the lure of riches choke the word and it bears no fruit. 
But the seed sown on rich soil is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields a hundred or sixty or thirtyfold. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus first said to his disciples, go forth to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the missionary impulse has been an essential part of the life of the church ever since, from St. Paul bringing the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus, his presence to them all over the known world at the time, to great missionaries like St. Francis Xavier, the Jesuit who went to China and became almost Chinese himself, bringing the gospel to them and making it accessible to people in a very, very different culture. And yes, to little village in Guatemala, tended by a diocesan priest from Spokane, Washington, Father David Baranti, he too was one of the great missionaries of our church throughout the ages. It might sound like a big claim, to make about somebody who died only a couple of weeks ago, who uh, was humble in all kinds of ways. He'll never be canonized by the church probably. But he was a true missionary in the spirit of Paul, in the spirit of Francis Xavier, in the spirit of so many others. A true missionary means someone who doesn't just go into another country, another culture, another world and say, here, I've got good news for you, accept it or go to hell. He doesn't do that. It's not someone who goes in and tramples all over them or who, who, who gets himself all tangled up with kings and queens and, and governors and, and generals and is just a front for a massive conquest of some other people so that they can get the gold and the silver out of the area and bring it back home. That's not real true missionary work. What is real true missionary work is marked by at least three things, three qualities. One is humility. The ability to say, you know, my culture is fine, it's good, it's beautiful, where I come from is home, but I'm going to leave it all so that I can go into another culture, another world, another place far away from where I grew up, far away from my family and my friends and everything that kind of makes sense to me and start over like a babe in the woods and do so humbly, recognizing that the people I am going to are just as holy as I am and maybe more so, that what I bring them is the gospel in word, certainly the stories of Jesus, yes, retold, so that they are accessible to this other people in another land and another culture, but also proclaimed by my deeds, by my life, by the way I am with them, loving, caring, merciful. And so the third quality of a good missionary is simply that of love. That, oh, I missed one. Second one is respect. <laughs> Sorry about that. that. That comes in and says this people, that, that has real respect for them and doesn't look at them as savages. Doing research on missionaries from Belgium who went to North America 
Their letters are filled with that word in French or in Dutch or in English, sauvage, savages. They looked down on them. They saw them as people who were little less than human, certainly not as great and wonderful and intelligent and as holy as we are. That's not respect. Respect is seeing them as human beings, as children of God, as brothers and sisters who are just as good as I am, who are just as holy as I am. That's respect. And charity is that ability to just give and give and sacrifice yourself even in the midst of all kinds of hardships, material and spiritual and otherwise. To give and to give and to give love the way of Jesus. <laughs> That's what brings the gospel to people in other lands and other places. Missionaries who are humble and who are respectful and who give of themselves. And that, in a word, was St. Paul, that was Francis Xavier, and that was Father David Baranti. For 42 years, ever since he was ordained a priest, this, this little short guy from Eugene, Oregon, by way of Spokane eventually, he was attracted by the poverty of our bishop at the time, Bishop Topol, who chose a life of poverty to be closer as a bishop to the people he served. And David went to him and said, I'd like to be like you. I'd like to serve like you serve. You inspire me. And I'd also like to be a priest, by the way, <laughs> and a missionary. So Bishop Topol sent him off to Louvain to get a dose of theology before sending him off to our mission in Guatemala that we'd had since the 19, early 1960s or late 50s. He picks the most distant, the most isolated, the poorest village in all of that mission area, which was pretty extensive. There was nothing down there in Santa Catarina Ishtuacan. This little village built in a deep valley. Still deep valley, but 8,000 feet above sea level, same as us here. And there he found a people who he grew to love. You know, he, he learned their language so that he could communicate to them on, in their own words. He, he gave himself to the people. He, he had these big projects that he did over the years. You know, he'd, he'd build silos so that they could store their corn and get through the hard times because they were subsistence farmers living on little plots of land that they farmed for corn and maize and, and beans, frijoles. And that was what they lived on. So he brought silos in. He started a big fish production thing. He'd bring a trout farm so that they could have some more protein in their diet. He built this is probably the biggest one of all. He blasted a road through the, through the mountains so that the, the head village, the, the municipality, the main village could be connected to some of its dependent villages you know, halfway to the coast of Guatemala. You know, it's a huge road. He blasted it with, with TNT and a huge, great big D9 tractor and these great big, huge things. And he did all that. But what really counts is what people told me over this past week. When they would come up to me and he'd say, when I was sick and I was close to death, Father David drove me himself in the middle of the night to the hospital or to the clinic. When I was, didn't have a house, my house was ruined by an earthquake or by a flood or by rain or whatever, he built me a new house. When my child was sick, he took care of my child. He blessed them. When I needed prayer, he, he, he gave me prayer. 
And thousands of people, at one point during the past week, when one of the big gatherings, we asked, how many of you were baptized by Father David? Hands went up like crazy all over the church. Hundreds, thousands of people baptized him. Not long ago, I saw him doing baptisms. I was there visiting maybe six, seven years ago. I have pictures of him. When he's baptizing a baby, he has the smile of God on his face. It's the most beautiful thing. He loved those people and he gave them everything, even at personal cost to himself. He, you know, his health, it was, it's hard. Diarrhea, you know, over and over and over again for 40-some years. Malnutrition, inadequate food, sunburn, all of that. That was part of his life and he didn't care. He was there for them, a true missionary, humble, respectful, and loving to the end. And so when word came that he had died in the United States, now a couple weeks ago, first the people couldn't believe it. How could this guy be dead, this pastor to us, this, this guy who served us and we know so well, who's done so much for us, how could he be dead? They didn't believe it at first. They were calling me and texting me, is it true? Is it true that he's dead? We don't believe it here. Other one said, I won't believe it until I see you know, his body, sort of like Thomas with Jesus and the, you know, his hands and the fingers and all that. And, and finally, of course, they, they come to the realization that, yes, he's passed away. He's gone back to God. And what do they do out of love for him, out of respect for him, out of a gratitude for all that he gave to them, they start building that very day a chapel off the side of the church or a couple extra, do uh, extra doors on the side like over here. And they used those doors and built a chapel around them to hold his remains for the rest of, <laughs> of time probably. A lovely little chapel as it turns out. <laughs> and so they're working on that. They start planning. And by the time I get there, uh, flew in last, when would I fly in? I forgot, it's all become a blur. <laughs> I guess it was Wednesday maybe, I flew in. It was kind of one little miracle after another. So I get to the airport in Guatemala City, and I'm nervous because I ha don't have any cellular service, and I'm supposed to meet Father Nicasio, the new pastor there, the present pastor. He's gonna pick me up and there's no communication. You, one of those things where you're in the airport and you're saying, uh-oh, how do I, you know, I said, well, I'll just wait around, but then the, that particular airport immediately, as soon as you go through customs, shushes you outside, so there's no, like, waiting area. <laughs> so I go, start out the door, and there, and standing right in front of me, passing by is Padre Nicasio. So, wow, Padre Nicasio, here I am. He turns, oh, great. <laughs> it's like, out of, out of all the possible moments we could have met there, that was the one we actually met. In the meantime, friends from Spokane, after a long process of getting his ashes from California and the paperwork that goes with them up to Spokane and then from Spokane down to Guatemala, they're carrying his ashes in a backpack, wondering if they're going to get through the airport without any difficulties. They slide through. They are, they're coming in at 3.30. So anyway, the crowd starts building. People are coming down out of the mountains to gather at the airport to receive the remains of Father David. And it's a, it's a beautiful moment when they receive finally the, the ashes and they have a, a casket there for it. And they put in the casket the ashes and some of his clothes and some of his vestments. 
and they put it in the back of a car and it's a long procession back up into the mountains to um, the first village where he will be um, prayed for. I got there ahead of them watching this extraordinary procession of cars and people come down the road in the little village of Sukobal. They have a beautiful new little church that they've built. And there's a sign over the front door saying, Welcome, Padre David, your last visit to Sukobal. And they take it out, take the casket out of the back of the vehicle. And that's when it hit me. I start crying as you see this casket coming out on the shoulders of all these people, surrounded by people touching him. They bring him into the church, set him on the catafalque there, and they begin to pray all night long, all night long. It's hymns and songs, and they've got a whole band going over here, and, and people are touching him and crying and weeping, and they ask me to say a few words, and I can't even start because I'm all choked up, and that's just the first night. The next day we come back for mass in the morning, have a beautiful mass. Next day they move him after the mass to the next village, next village, all the same over and over again. Finally, on Friday, they have this long procession from the last village to bring him into the main town. And that means going up the hill and back down the hill, cars and trucks and pickups and people just walking under a driving rain as we come back down into the main town of Santa Catarina Ishtuacan. And it's pouring rain like some of the rains we get here. And I was in a pickup truck and I hauled by a bunch of kids in the back. I hold back there, you guys want to, you know, squish into the back of the truck? No, we're enjoying it back here in the rain. They get to the town, they take the casket out, they have a brass band and they have the people and they start processing through the village, through the t streets of the town, stopping by the school is named after him that he helped build. You come back in, it's about an hour later, they finally get to the doors of the church, the rectory. They come up to the rectory doors, they turn the casket three times, and I guess for the Father, Son, and Spirit, I was told, and then into the church. And there the vigil continues. There, every one of the 20-some communities that are associated with Antigua, Santa Catherine, Nishtuacan, had their hour all day, all night, to pray, to sing, to give talks, to reflections, memories, all night long into the next day. And, and then on Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday noon, the bishop arrives and we have the final mass for him. And in the final mass, again, the, the church is packed, packed, packed. There's no space, standing room only, not even standing room. Outside, huge crowds. People from all the villages, all the towns come in and, and are gathered there to pray for him and to be there for the Mass. And so we start the Mass. I'd asked, the bishop came up from Solala, Bishop Domingo. We'd asked if I could do part of the Eucharistic prayer where we commemorate the dead. What almost nobody knew was that I had been practicing my quiche. <laughs> So I did that little piece in Quiche, the native language, phonetically, but I knew the sounds because I'd studied it before when I was there years ago myself. And there, um, that's, people started crying and I had a hard time getting through it. And then we continued with the mass. After the mass, there's some talks, a few little, by myself and Bishop. Bishop gave a nice homily and then 
Four of us priests went down, picked up the casket, kind of made our way, kind of had to kind of part the Red Sea of people to get to the chapel and replaced his remains in this little chapel that they had built for him. And closed the doors, closed the gates. And from there on, there's been people at the doors of that chapel um, on their knees praying for him and I suppose asking for his continued love for them. But that's, that's what happens with a good missionary, a true missionary. Their humility, their respect, and their love for the people that they serve, even to the cost of their own lives in some ways. I saw his death certificate, first cause with cardiac infarct, uh, second cause, malnutrition. Third cause, bacteria, also cholesterol. So anyway, um, all of that, the people, and the, for me, as they saw me as a sort of a stand-in for Father David because I happened to be the same color of skin and about the same size. And when I did the words in Quiche, that sealed the deal. So it was, for me, it was abrazos, embraces, tears, um, galore, um, and photographs. Padre, we want a picture with you as a reminder of Father David. <laughs> Sometimes I stood for two hours t taking pictures with these crowds of people wanting pictures with me. And it wasn't because of me, it was because of him. And all of that was for me a kingdom of God moment, a kingdom of God experience. You experience the presence of God, the kingdom of God, and these beautiful people who are a jewel in the life of the church. They are, they are a people who already are living the kingdom of God in so many ways because of Father David, but also because of their own holiness and their own devotion and their own faith, which is so impressive and so beautiful. And you know, to watch them pray is like, I don't know how to pray like that. I'll never be able to pray as deeply as they pray. You know, their hands up, kneeling in front of the altar or the statue or now in front of his tomb, you know, tears and words and it's beautiful beyond words and all of that is the work that missionaries do and it's not just for the people it's also for them as I told the people over and over again every time I was asked to speak is father David gave a lot to you but you also gave a lot to him he was able to do this because of your love for him, your faith, your devotion, because he saw in your faces the face of God, the face of Jesus Christ. In your hearts, he saw and experienced the Holy Spirit in a way he could never experience it back home in the U.S. That's why he stayed here. That's why he lived here. That's why he worked here so hard for so long. And for me, as I said, it was a kingdom of God experience from beginning to end. Uh, their faith, their love, their devotion, their respect, their abrazos, their tears, which we shared together, um, renewed me and allowed me to see again the presence of God in this world in a way that I don't see all that often. And that is beautiful and wonderful. And that's what missionaries do. And that's the good seed that God is strewing across the face of this earth. People like the people of Santa Catarina Ishtuakan, people like Father David, and indeed people like yourselves. So 
the missionary impulse has been part of our church from the very beginning. It's a beautiful thing because it allows us to know other people, to share the story of Jesus with them, and to have them share with us the presence of Christ in their own lives. They bless us as much as we ever bless them. And that's the story of great missionaries from Paul to Francis Xavier to Father David Baranti. May he rest in peace.